Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, turn to Psalms 130, or I'm sorry, 103. I have the wrong one, Psalms 103. We read it earlier. We're going to be reading through considering that passage this morning. And as you turn to Psalms 103, consider this scenario. Trevor is a new Christian. He grew up in a broken home raised by his mother. He never really knew his father. His mother did the best she could, but it never seemed enough. Now, after 22 years, his father has reached out to him with requests to meet. Curious, Trevor agrees to meet him only to find out that his father has been diagnosed with cancer and wants to spend his last few years and moments getting to know his son. Trevor, as you might imagine, is not sure how to respond and is torn between forgiving his father or ignoring his pleas for reconciliation. Last week when we get, we, last weekend I should say, we began our series regarding the command and the importance of pursuing restoration through forgiveness. In our message last week, we realized that Jesus has commanded all believers to forgive as God has forgiven us. One of the marks we learned of a forgiven soul is that we in return forgive others. Now we realize that this is easier said than done as often the trespasses, the sins against us are very harmful, hurtful, and even now years later still damaging to our hearts, our soul, maybe even to our mental state, emotional state. Yet God has called us in spite of all that to cancel the record of debt, uh, uh, record of debt that we hold against others, instead of holding on to grudges and anger and bitterness and resentment, lest Satan get a foothold in our lives. And many of us, we learn, and probably you yourself thinking here, those listening to, uh, to this later, is that all of us, or many of us, struggle with this concept of forgiving others. We struggle with anger and bitterness and resentment. We're still holding on to grudges. And, and to be honest, we, there's a lot of us that we want to release the debt that someone has, has, that we have against someone else. We know that they owe us, but we just don't know how to cancel it. Or we think that we have, but yet, as we saw last week, many times it comes up, maybe years later in an argument, in a fight. And here we are once again, pulling out of the dustbin all these things that people have done to us. It's very difficult. And as I mentioned last week, this series of pursuing restoration through forgiveness is not about you asking for forgiveness, though that is important. I don't want to, to mistake that anyway, but it's about offering forgiveness. It's the offender granting forgiveness to the offender. We are indebted to Pastor Chris Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, as we work through Scripture that informs us of not only the command, but also the importance and the benefits of pursuing restoration and our relationships with God and with others. 
Today, we're going to consider what forgiveness consists of as we ask and answer questions like, what does forgiveness entail? What is it that I have to do? What does it look like? And how does one forgive someone who has caused them great harm? And maybe that harm is ongoing. It's not a one and done deal. It is something that's continually happening. What if the person isn't asking for forgiveness? Should I still forgive them when they're not even asking for it? We've all heard statements like, we are to forgive and forget. And to be honest, who can do that? You know, time may make those things diminish, but it's very difficult. We're humans. It's difficult for us to forget. We are to forgive unconditionally. Are we to forgive unconditionally? That's very difficult to do. There's not much that you and I can do unconditionally in this body. We are to forgive ourselves. That's an old statement. Even I have said that from the pulpit. But is that true? So that's what we're going to look at. Are these statements biblical or are they just man-made slogans for therapeutical exercises? To start with, with, start with, we must understand that you and I are just frail humans with futile minds. We have frightful hearts and feeble wills. To understand forgiveness and pursuing restoration, we need to understand God, his person, his character, his many attributes. If you and I are to forgive as God has forgiven us, we must understand how and why God forgives and what it accomplishes when he does so. So today we're going to look at Psalms 103. It's there in your book. It's probably also here on the monitor. And it says here, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I love how that starts off. Forget not his benefits. Well, you and I this morning are going to look at the benefits of God and why we should bless and magnify him with our soul, with our mind, and with our heart. Father, before we do so, thank you for your word. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have pursued restoration with us through forgiveness. And so help us, excuse me, as we just do this difficult work of unpacking what forgiveness looks like, Lord, I pray that you open our minds to Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would not attune to deaf ears knowing that we'd rather hold on to it. And many times, uh, show that to us. Many times we're not wanting to release it. We're wanting to hold on to it. it it's a grudge. It's, it's, it's something that we find comfort in. Or maybe it's something we just use as a hammer to bludgeon even those we love and care about. But Father... I pray that you would begin to melt the hearts this morning. Father, that if there's any here that do not know you as Savior, Lord, that you would call them today and that they may see that the Father loves them and is drawing them to his self. Lord, in all these things, may you be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. One day, as you and I know, Peter came up to the Lord and he asked this question, looking here in the monitor. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many times as seven times? That's a good question. He comes to the Lord and says, listen, there is someone who continually is, is harming me, who's offended me, who's doing, uh, uh, doing something against me. How many times am I to forgive him? And so Peter just throws out a number. How about 49 times or seven times? Seven times, he says. Should I do it just seven times in one day? But look at how Jesus answered. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but... 77 times. Now, to do the math, we'd see that's 490 times in one day. Now, you say that's a pretty big number, but you know what? 
You probably count out there's someone who probably does that or gets very, very close. Now, I want to share with you is, is God is not saying that you need to have a clicker, right? You know, think of an umpire or someone with a clicker. Uh, that's one. Oh, you're in the 300s now, buddy. All right, 389, 398. You're almost there and you're just waiting there, ready to blow. No. 490 times is quite a lot of trespasses. To forgive someone that many transgresses would be considered unjust and unfair, would it not? It just would not be fair. It would be unjust. How often do we hear or read of people arrested and convicted of multiple DUIs who go on to kill someone? Or maybe theft, as we just look in the newspaper today, and what happened in retail. And even murder, who then receive light sentences and then go on to commit more crimes as soon as they're out the door. To many, it seems that there is no justice. And they demand heavier and lengthier sentences and punishment, while others plead for mercy and compassion, believing that those who commit such crimes are victims themselves. But yet, if you're here today and you have been offended, there is someone who has trespassed, who has sinned, who has harmed you. You and I understand that we are wanting payback. We're wanting vengeance. That that anger, as we talked about last week, is a debt that someone owes me. Going back to our story earlier, Trevor believes that his dad owes him the time that he lost as a child not having a father to play catch with him, to teach him how to tie knots, to help him with his homework, to play and ball with him and play catch. You know, it's funny, as an advertisement, there's a bus stop right out here. I don't know if you saw if you came in. But the next door, it blares out this question. Who hurt you? And it's, a, it's a funny little one that has, but let me ask you today, before we go any further, who has hurt you? When my kids were younger and I now have the grandchildren, when they spend the night, that's one of the questions I ask them as we go to bed. How's your heart today? Did anyone hurt you at school? Did you hurt anyone at school? Have you been bullied? Have you been a bully? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to do heart work. You see, that's what we're really doing here this morning and through this series is you and I need to do some heart work. We need to understand that hurt, being hurt, is something that's just part of normal in life. So there's the question, who has hurt you? Going on the next, next slide, you'll see that there's lawyers who are chasing ambulances, who are looking for payback, vengeance, and a pound of flesh. Everywhere you go, there are signs. Have you been hurt? Call this number. And we may laugh at those and say, oh, those are ambulance chasers. Oh, those people are just the scum of the earth. But yet, you and I are on the metaphorical cell phone calling lawyers every day. Somebody hurt me. Somebody trespassed against me. Somebody offended me. They didn't say hi. They didn't look at me. They gave me a dirty look. There was a smirk on their face. They got in my lane. They cut me off. And so we're so quick to complain in our own minds. And then we just store that up, not even realizing that we're carrying a debt. Simon Wessenthal, he was a Jewish Australian, uh, not Australian, but Austrian Holocaust survivor. 
Many of you probably know of him. He has a center in L.A. He survived two different concentration camps and a death march, but survived it all. After his release and returning uh, to America, or then coming to America and well as to Europe, he became a Nazi hunter and a writer after World War II. He spent the rest of his life helping to hunt down those responsible for atrocities committed during the war. He knew something about being offended, about trespasses. He knew something about anger and bitterness and resentment. And years later, he remarked, looking here at the monitor, he said, the crux of the matter is, of course, the question of forgiveness. He goes on to say, forgetting is something that time alone takes care of. The hurt becomes diminished, right? But forgiveness, he says, is an act of, viola- of, of volition. It is something that you must choose to do. And listen to this. He says, and only the sufferer, the one who is harmed, the one who is trespassed against, is qualified to make the decision. Todd Friel tweets out that forgiving someone 70 times 7, 490 times, he says is peanuts compared to the number of sins that God has forgiven me. Let me tell you, you get past 490, most likely before you get out of bed. Reminds me of that old joke, this man is praying, he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I've done such a good job today. I haven't yelled at my wife. I haven't kicked the dog. I haven't screamed at the kids. I am not even mad at my boss. But I'm ready to get out of bed now. You know what I mean. We sin against God well more than 490 times a day. And I think many of us that sometimes have forgotten all the sins and trespasses that we commit are really not against other people, but against God. Let me say it once again. You and I need to remember that all sins, all trespasses, you may be pointed at you, but they're really against a holy God. King David understood this as he cried out in Psalms 51.4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David says, I know that I have sinned and I've sinned against you. Now, he has said this after he has slept with Bathsheba, a woman who is not his wife. He says this after he has killed her husband, Uriah. He recognizes that his sin, yes, has hurt them. It has hurt his wives. It has hurt his family. It's going to hurt his nation. We'll see more about that uh, later, I think, uh, either today or uh, next week. But what we have to understand is that all sin is against God. That's why it says that God is righteous and justified in his judgment against us. Though the trespass, the sin, the hurt, and the harm that you are carrying in your heart today, it's like a heavy load that is laying you down. It may have been against you. They have hurt you. It is actually a rebellion against a holy God who has called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And our unwillingness, please listen, our unwillingness to forgive 
is due to a hardened heart. So in that, as you hold on to these grudges, you hold on to these sins, if you hold on to those, those things, and if you're not willing to offer forgiveness, you yourself are guilty of sin and rebellion against your Creator. Pastor Chris Brown writes that, uh, warns that God expects believers to forgive others in the way that he forgives them. Now we see this in scripture. I think I have several of these up there. Let's see, uh, Matthew, yes, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's our prayer. But then he goes on, let's look at Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as what? God has forgiven you. Colossians 3, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, holding that up for just a moment, look at that. I underlined some important words in there. Do you see what the qualifier there is? Does you see how you and I are forgive? As. Little word. It's a big word. Two letters. That's a big word. You see the qualification there, God, as God, as the Lord has forgiven, so also you must forgive. God has tied his forgiveness to us, to our forgiveness of others. They go hand in hand. Now, this is all fine and dandy, but still the question remains. How does God forgive? If I forgive as God does, then how does God forgive? To what extent does God forgive? Does he only do 490 and then 491? God pulls off the stops. Does he have that little hammer, you know, that little cartoon hammer that we think of, you know, coming down upon our heads at 491? Let me ask you, to whom does he forgive? Does he forgive everyone? And does he forgive everyone equally? Does he forgive you? Does he forgive your grandmother? Does he forgive Hitler, Stalin, Putin? And are there any limiting principles in forgiving? In other words, I can forgive here, but there comes a point where God does not. Are there any limiting? Is there any sins that are too much that God would not forgive? Now, to understand God's forgiveness, you're in Psalms 103. At least I pray that you're there. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 5 where you and I are going to find the divine pattern of how God forgives. The as God forgives, so we must also. We're going to find the divine pattern right here in Psalms 103. Ready? Let's look at it. I believe it's also on the monitor here. But hopefully you have your Bibles. Underline this, highlight this phrase. It says, God who forgives all your iniquity, that's sin, who heals all your diseases. Do you see a word there already that's become a theme? Three-letter word. A-L-L. Again, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Giving us a picture of an eagle who soars. Majestic, beautiful picture. In this passage, you and I read of a beautiful word picture of God's wonderful grace and mercy in restoring those who have trespassed against his holy commands. And so today, this morning, I want to consider 
five ways that God forgives. Five ways that God forgives. This is coming from Chris Brown as he interposes us through Scripture. Number one, let's just get right into it. God's forgiveness is gracious but not free. Simon Weisenthal was, was correct here. I don't know if he got it from God's word, but he was correct. God's forgiveness is gracious, but God's forgiveness is not free. Now, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we understand, we know this verse. Many of you have it memorized in multiple translations or in a hodgepodge of translations, if you're like me. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. We've been forgiven. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, it's not something that I have done that God says, I will forgive you, I will offer my forgiveness, but something that God has done. You see, God's forgiveness is not motivated by our love for him, nor our merit. It's not something that we have done. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4, that God being rich in mercy... Think of that, someone who's a musk-like money, right? Or uh, Bezos or some of these others. God has much more than that. It says he is rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us. Dr. James Kennedy, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to see him. He's, he's passed now, but I always encourage you to Google some of his old messages. He, decided, he described God's um, great, uh, amazing grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, it's an acrostic there. God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, grace and forgiveness, or forgiveness comes at a cost. In 1 John 4.10, we see, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. There's that big word, propitiation. Pastor Leon Moore states that propitiation is a turning away of wrath by an offering. So in other words, forgiveness is not free in the fact that Christ suffered so that you and I can be forgiven. In other words, God knew that we could not pay the debt of God's wrath. We could not satisfy it. Hence, Jesus came as God and man. And he was able to be our substitute. And in that way, we see that we are now forgiven. But God's forgiveness is gracious. But God's forgiveness is not free. It costs. Number two, God's forgiveness is conditional. Now that's different. We usually think, well, it's supposed to be unconditional. But no, it is conditional. What we learn from Scripture is that only those, now get this, only the ones that God forgives, who is it that God forgives? Only, only those who repent and believe are forgiven. To repent means to turn away from our sin and turn to Christ. Paul writes of this in Acts 20 when he declares, I did not shrink from you declaring anything that was profitable. Paul is, talk, is writing, he says, and I'm teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God. So who does God forgive? Only those that repent and turn towards him. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, please. The greatest and gravest presumption that mankind makes as a whole 
is taking the kindness of God for granted. And you may say, what do you mean? What is the kindness of God? Well, that's what a word is called common grace. You might have heard the phrase, it rains on the just and the unjust. Uh, God gives to the wicked and to the righteous. Paul actually kind of, or not Paul, I'm sorry, King David kind of complains a little bit about that. Why is the good things happen to bad people, but it seems like, uh, bad, or good people, bad things happen to good people? Bad things happen to good people, and why does it seem like good things happen to bad? I think I got that right eventually. And sometimes, don't you wonder? That's common, God's common grace. He gives to all of us the things that are to natural revelation to turn towards him. But look at Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 4. Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? In other words, are you presuming that God is always going to be kind? That God is always going to be forbear? And God is always going to be patient towards you? Not knowing, he says, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So we have a worldview of humanity from history that is presumed that just because life is going well, that God is going to forgive them whatever they do. But that's not scripture. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 2, look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's what we saw there in Psalms uh, 51, 4. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. In other words, every trespass is being recorded by God. He will know and judge, and justice will finally be done. In verse 7, he says, to those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Those who turn towards him. But... For those who are self-seeking and looking for vengeance themselves, that's my words, not the scripture, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. So what we see here is that if you and I do not forgive as God has forgiven us, he says, actually, that, is, that shows that you are not a Christian. The mark of a true Christian is one who offers forgiveness, who is willing to do so. But in this case, we need to recognize that God's forgiveness is conditional. You cannot think that God will forgive you if you do not repent and turn towards him. Number three, God's forgiveness is a commitment by God only, only, to those he forgives. So Simon Wathel said, or Weisenthal, excuse me, said that it's a violate or a volition. It's someone who says, I am going to do it. I am going to be the bigger man, the bigger woman, whatever it might be, and I am going to offer forgiveness. But he says here, it's a commitment by God only though to those he forgives. The most common word for forgiveness in the Bible in the New Testament is the Greek word that means to release from legal, uh, legal or moral obligation or consequences. It's a cancellation of that debt. We said what we see in Psalms 103 is that God commits to forgiving all 
our iniquities. God omits or God omits that he will or commits that he will release all of our debts. In Colossians 2, we read this. I believe it might be on the screen. Yes, one of my favorite verses. And yes, it is my favorite verse. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Before we go on, who is that talking about? It's talking about us. All of us are dead in our trespasses. We're born in that state, holding little uh, um, stets in there just before the service. I'm just loving him. I love his smile, but yet I know that deep in his heart, he is a sinner and is in need of a savior. Hence why we pray for our children that they may be raised up in a home that will share with them the gospel so they may come to know what their true heart is. But he goes on here in Colossians chapter 2. He says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us what? All, there's that word, our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, holding us on, nailing it to the cross. Every one of your sins, past, present, and future, is canceled. It is no longer against you. I don't know if you've ever had been someone who has had a debt against you and you get those, start getting those calls, right? And you got to make those payments. And there's something about eventually when you get it all paid off, there's just that sigh. Maybe it's when you finally pay off your car. Maybe you pay off your mortgage. Maybe it's just paying off that weekly, you know, uh, loan thing that you might get nowadays. But there's a relief to that. What we see here is that God commits to, commits to forgiving us all of our sins. He cancels the record of debt. And in doing so, as we look at the next one, Paul writes that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he must put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In other words, no one else can come against us and say, listen, I've got this record of debt. Here is some sin that you need to pay for. No, it says reconciled, paid in full. There is nothing that God has forgiven that will ever come back up. There is no sin that he will not forget to those he is, to those he is committed to forgive. Now, you see, this is great news as we sang about, sung about last week in the song, To God Be the Glory. When we sung that last line, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. There have been stories of prisoners, including even serial killers, who before they die, before they're put to death, have accepted Christ. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes I'm skeptical about those, but there's many times when you hear those stories, you think that's not fair. Think of one who killed 30-something women. Before he died, he says, yes, I have accepted Christ. He goes on, goes on TV, he says, yes, I've accepted Christ. God has forgiven me. And you and I think, there's no way. But even in that circumstance, God commits to forgive those who he loves. So not only is God's forgiveness a commitment by God, but it's only to those he forgives. But it's also number four, forgiveness we see lays the groundwork for and begins the process of reconciliation. In other words, the goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. 
It's to make things right. As I use that word, reconciliation is a word that means to balance, to, to, to make it zero at the end on both sides of the ledger. John writes in his first letter, this is the message that we've heard from Jesus and we proclaim it to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So just get that. God is a holy God. There is no hint of darkness. There is no shadow in his person and his character. He goes on to say that if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So even we as Christians, we know that once we are saved, we still will sin against him. We still rebel against him each and every day. And he goes on to state, though, as you see here in the monitor, but that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have reconciliation. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. So it is an ongoing work in our lives that God desires for you and I to have reconciliation with him, that we can be his children and he could be our father. You and I have an inheritance because of what he does. But he also warns us in verse 8, for those <coughs> that, that are prideful, those that might say, well, I've never harmed anyone. I have not sinned. He says in verse 8 of 1 John 1, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So each and every one of us is in need of a Savior. We are sinners Hence why we pray as we do in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our sin as we forgive others. But through Christ, the Father has pursued us so that we may be reconciled to him. As Christians, when we sin, he promises again in verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That is God's promise to you. Reconciliation. So when God forgives, it is not just him wiping out the debt, but it's God who had something against. He says that we're children of disobedience. He says that we are enemies of Christ. But when he forgives us, God says he puts his hand uh, over the table and says, let's shake hands. Not only that, he then grabs us and he grabs us to himself and he hugs us. And he says, walk with me. That's the type of forgiveness as we're going to see next week that we are to forgive with. But there's also a warning, number five. Forgiveness does not mean the elimination of all consequences. Number five, forgiveness does not mean Oh, you know what? I went, I went too far, didn't I? Sorry about that, Randy. Let's go back. Jesus ends by warning, going back to the first one, or the, uh, the fourth one. John ends by warning in verse 10 that if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In, uh, take your Bibles real quickly, 2 Corinthians, chapter two, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you do so, quick look up on the monitor as when you get to it, and we'll just hold that up there. One theologian, L. Gregory Jones, states that people are mistaken 
if they think Christian forgiveness prim primarily as an absolution from the guilty or from guilty or from guilt. The purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of communion, the reconciliation of brokenness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, if you're there in your Bible, Paul writes, If therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. Look at verse 18. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then look on verse 18, 19. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then in verse 20, through the back of verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All of this begins as God graciously commits to forgive those who repent of their sin. And so as we look at these things, sorry about jumping ahead there, but getting to this thing is that we need to recognize that God's purpose of forgiveness is reconciliation, getting us back together. Now let's go to number five. Forgiveness does not mean the elimination of all consequences. Now we're going to explore how this works out in our life next week. But you and I need to recognize that just because we are forgiven does not eliminate all, all consequences. This is the kicker. This is what you and I struggle with. We believe that forgiving someone who has hurt us is unfair. It's unjust. We complain that it allows them to get away with their sin. However, biblical forgiveness holds that two things are true at the same time. God forgives, but yet God also holds us accountable for our sin. Indeed, God indeed forgives sin as he declares in Psalms 103, 11 through 12 that we read earlier. That is for high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those, uh, towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. So it is true. God takes our sin, he puts it from the east and the west, and they never meet. If you and I were just think of the world, the globe. Now, we here believe that the earth is a sphere. It is not flat. If I just broke a dream, I am sorry. I apologize. However, as you know how east and west goes, the further east you go, you never reach it, right? You're always going east. In the same way, you're always going west. They don't meet. The Bible says that's what he does with their sin. So God does forgive you of your sins. And it says in Romans 8 that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. So God, even, or even when we sin after accepting Christ, God holds no wrath against us. We are truly forgiven. Yet we also read of accountability. Turn to 2 Samuel real quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to look at verse 7. This is a story that we spoke about earlier about King David. King David was a great man. God made him king. He did a wonderful thing. He wrote most of the Psalms. He is a hero for many of us to emulate. But David had a weakness, and that weakness was women. He had a lustful heart. He didn't have any self-control when it came to women. One day when he was supposed to go to war with his armies, he did not. He stayed home. He was just going to relax a little bit. Goes up and he sees a woman across Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And that was something normal during the day. However, David shouldn't have been there. He should have been at war with his enemies or war against his enemies with his, with his armies. 
but he sees her. Now, seeing is one thing, but then when he does more, he goes and he sends after and says, who is this? And then comes and says, well, this is the wife of Uriah. Now, Uriah happened to be a friend of David. That should have been number two, but yet he goes and says, well, get her for me. They sleep together, as most of us know. They wind up having a child, and when found out that she's pregnant, he then tries to get Uriah to sleep with her so he could say, well, it's Uriah's child. He tries to deceive and cover it up, just like you and I deceive and cover up our sins. Then eventually, Uriah doesn't do so, so he has Uriah killed. He's guilty of murder. As we come to 2 Samuel, what was that chapter? 2 Samuel chapter 12, we come to verse 7. Nathan is a prophet. Now God's willing to forgive David, but we have to understand that consequences come with sinful actions many times. Doesn't mean we're not forgiven. But at this point, he sends the prophet Nathan. And he tells him this story of a man who had many sheep, but he went and stole someone else's sheep. And David says, well, that man should die. I love Nathan's words. You are that man. You're the guilty one. You're the one who has taken, stolen what does not belong to you. But he goes on, thus the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of King Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your arms. And I gave you the house, the nation of Israel and of Judah. And as if this was too little, I would add to you so much more. God is saying, I'm willing to give you all that I have. I am rich in mercy. Verse 9, but why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in the sight. He knew what the commandments was, were. He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Not only did you not kill him yourself, you let him purposely be killed by the enemies of God. Now here's the charge. That was the charge. Look at verse 10 as we come to the accountability, the consequences that David must suffer. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, meaning he's always going to have war and violence. Because you despise me and have taken the wife Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord in verse 11, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And as we know, his, his children, his own children rebelled against him. One of his sons uh, did terrible things to his sister. He says, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. That would end up being his own son who did that. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel and before the sun. In other words, I'm going to let everyone see the sin. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your anger, your sin. You shall not die. So God forgives him, which leads him to write Psalms 51. But look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall what? Die. Violence, rebellion in his own house, and the baby would die. 
God forgives, Christian, but accountability cannot always be eliminated. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 12. Pastor Chris Braun in his book, Unplugging Forgiveness, raises these questions. You'll see it here in the monitor as you're turning to Hebrews 12, near the end of your Bible in the New Testament. He asks this question about accountability. He says, if God truly forgives, if he no longer holds the sin against the forgiven, then why are there still consequences? That's a good question. If he forgives, why is there still accountability? He answers, as you look at the next, is that God disciplines his own not for the purpose of punishing them. By the way, parents, get this. The reason why you discipline your children is not to punish them, but for his glory and for their joy in the future. He says these consequences are not punishment. Rather, they are how God trains and teaches. The author of Hebrew compares the discipline of our parents to our Heavenly Father. As you're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 10. Speaking of our earthly parents, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Children, you need to be disciplined. Parents, you need to dis discipline your children. The Bible says to spare the rod is to spoil the child. And I won't go much into it. The rod does not only necessarily mean corporate punishment, but you're to train in the holiness so that, that they may be forgiven by God, but also escape the consequences that come from a rebellion against God. Remember, child, children, parents, remember this. When your children rebel against you, they are rebelling against a holy God. When they say no, when, when they disobey you, they're rebelling against a holy God, and God is holding up. It says he's storing up wrath for them if they do not turn towards them. So let us recognize in the same way that God does forgive, but consequences does not mean that consequences are eliminated. So going back, I want to look at all five of them. Are they up there? Thank you, Randy. Once again, the Bible tells us that we are to forgive as God forgives us. So we have to look at it. How does God forgive? Number one, God forgives. Forgiveness is gracious. It's giving. There's a willingness, but it's not free. It does cost. And so in this case, we're going to see next week, we're going to take these five and apply them to you. God's forgiveness is conditional. You must repent. God's forgiveness is a commitment to, to forgive, to release, to cancel the debt. God's forgiveness leads to reconciliation. It, it leads to coming back together. And fifthly, God's forgiveness does not eliminate all consequences. Now that we have understand this, we can understand now 
what forgiveness is. Remember, that was our thing, defining forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Here it is. You can take a, you can take a picture of it on your phone. That's probably faster. Or those of you who can write real quickly. By the way, does anyone do dictation any longer? What was that? What was that called when uh, shorthand? Has anyone done that? I, you know, just amazing. I don't think they do cursive anymore, so they probably wouldn't do uh, that. But here it is, Chris Braun. He says, forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him. Although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. Now, going back to our scenario, look at that once again. Going back to our scenario in our opening with Trevor and his father, you and I now can understand how God the Father forgives But the question as we look at this, can you and I do that? Can can we do those five things? Put it in sentence form. Can you and I forgive as God forgives? I would say humanly, no. But because God is God, he empowers us to do so. And let me share you, if we cannot do that, then we are in danger of not being forgiven ourselves. This is important for us to understand. You and I are not divine. We are not God. But next week, and I want you to come next week, we're going to consider how we can take that definition, how God forgives, and we are then going to apply it to then how then you and I are to forgive so that we can show that we are uh, true Christians, true believers of God. We're going to take and apply it to sinful, frail humans that struggle with forgiveness and many times a lack of desire to pursue reconciliation. So I encourage you to be here next week as we continue to see how you and I can pursue restoration through forgiveness as God forgives us. I want to close with this psalm as the worship team and Randy begin making their way up. It says, but in steadfast love, going back to Psalms 103, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. These are the benefits of a holy wonderful God that he is willingly and graciously wanting to offer you. You and I are then are called to offer that to those who have harmed, hurt, and even abused us. With every head bowed and every eye closed just for a moment. Randy, would you make your way all the way up, please? I just want to take a moment to pause and just consider these words. They're difficult words. I tell you, I struggle with this concept I can, I can picture scenarios in which I'm not sure I can do that without a lot of Holy Spirit work. So I'm going to ask you to pray as Randy prays. And I want you to take this message and can think of it this week. Hopefully you took the notes, you got the five things. And let us pray that the Holy Spirit will cause us to respond, to forgive as God has forgiven us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Randy. 
We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.